0: Would you please open your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. I want to invite you to stand if you can. Here's the word of the Lord, Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may... all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And now we'll be their God. Please be seated. Let's ask the Lord's blessing in prayer. Father, we come before you as desperate children, sons and daughters who long to hear your voice. Please speak to us. We spoke to you through singing, but true worship begins when you speak to us. So please help me to be faithful, deliver me from my own sins and failures, help me to be clear. Help me to be a a good and faithful slave. So help my heart and mouth to be chained to your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit be working in both of us here, me and the congregation. Bless your people, help them, enable them, empower them to hear faithfully. Thank you for this place that we can meet, thank for our daily bread, thank for food this morning, thank for your benevolence in giving us water, bodies that can work, serve, worship you. You have been so kind towards us, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Who is Abraham? Who is Abraham? Most of those who grew up in church know primarily about Abraham from their little children's song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons, were. I'm one of them. So are you. So what? Uh, let's all praise the Lord. What? Right hand. Left hand. Yes, wonderful. I was thinking about it. Even to understand this song, you've got to have some sound theology because Abraham did not have many sons. Actually, he had one sketchy Ishmael <laughs> by his own efforts. And he actually had one son, with his wife. So even to understand. Father Abraham had many sons. He got away. I read my Bible. He had just one true son. But sadly. We. Become just like the Jews. In the first century. And if you read John chapter 8. There's a heartbreaking story. Of the Jews really angry at Jesus. Because Jesus talks about freedom, and they say, we are free, we are children of Abraham. And Jesus right there clearly sees that they don't know Abraham. Because if they knew Abraham, they would know whom? Jesus Christ. The New Testament opens with the implication that the followers of Christ know who Abraham is. The first line of the New Testament says the genealogy or the record of Jesus Christ, who? The son of David, the son of who? Abraham. So it implies that we know who Abraham is. And it is true, to know Christ, you need to know Abraham, and if you know Abraham, you will know Christ. So Muslims and Jews, they don't know Abraham. Abraham. Only those who know Christ truly know Abraham. Amen? And my prayer is that as we continue our journey, and today we finish the Abrahamic Covenants, that our knowledge and our understanding of Abraham will have increased. And as our understanding of Abraham increases, our heart and our love towards Jesus, the true seed of Abraham will also enlarge and grow. So, that's. Move to the context. And you remember, as I pointed out last week, the story of Abraham is inseparable from the preceding stories. The Bible doesn't start with Genesis 12. There are actually 11 chapters before Genesis 12. So to understand the story of Abraham, we need to understand what's taking place. And you remember, especially with Genesis 3, we see the spread and the disaster of sin in humanity. And sin is spreading like cancer, destroying humanity. To the point that the Lord says, I cannot handle anymore. And then we see in Genesis 6-9, through 9, God acting through mercy and judgment what we call salvation through judgment. And that's the story of Noah, the Abrahamic covenant, how God preserves one family, and He brings a decreation into the world. He brings the water of chaos and covers the dry land, the opposite of creation, when He brings life by removing the waters and bringing the dry land. And God spares that one family in order to preserve the seed and to preserve the cosmos so the seed can come. And we see right after, Abra- after Noah, we, we see that the new star it, is not enough because Noah sins, he gets drunk, his son sins, and humanity continues sinning. And then in Genesis 10 and 11, we have... chapter 10 is the introduction to the chapter 11 that's the Tower of Babel and we see in the Tower of Babel what sin is doing to people. They want to reach heavens without God. They want to build Eden again without God on man's own power and strength. And it's in this context that God calls Abraham. After his Cursing and judgment, he brings this man to bring blessing into the nations that what happens in the Tower of Babel? How does God judge the humanity? How does God judge humanity with the Tower of Babel? Remember the exile of the nations. All the nations are far away from His presence. He doesn't bring a flood to kill, He actually spreads humanity. All over the place, brings confusion. Daniel Hayes, he says, recall that Genesis 10 describes the, that's the introduction to the division of the world according to family, mishpaha, language, l- land or country, and nation. The call of Abraham picks up on these three things terms. Go from your land, I will make you to a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Thus the promise to Abraham is the answer to sin and the scattering of Genesis 3 through 11. So as we come to the story of Abraham, we need to understand that this story is interwoven It's inseparable from what's taking place. That's the problem with so much of topical preaching in certain characters is that we never understand the flow of the Scriptures and why this character is there. God calls Abraham to be the instrument of his blessing to the nations that are in exile from God's blessed presence. So one scholar, Bernard Och, he says, the call to Abraham is God's creational response to the process of decreation which has brought destruction and disunity upon humanity. It signifies a new step in the process of recreation which began after the flood. So that's the Introduction to the Abrahamic Covenant, and we spend more time last Sunday. We spend a good amount of time explaining the background so you can understand. Today we're going to continue where we stop. Here's the outline: we're going to be looking at the covenant confirmed, and now the sign of the covenant with Genesis 17. Then we're going to be the covenant tested and reaffirmed by oath in Genesis 22. And then the connection of the Abrahamic covenant with the other covenants. And I just hope that if you were not here last Sunday, that you either listened to the sermon, you watched the sermon, or you read the notes. That's the responsible thing to be doing if you miss, so you can keep up in track. It's your responsibility as a church member to know where we are with the preaching, and even to hold the preacher accountable as you listen to what's being taught. Amen? So, and I'm not going to spend time reviewing chapters 12 and 15. We're going to move straight to verse, to chapter 17 of Genesis. And Genesis 17 is very important. It's one of the most important chapters in the life of Abraham. Because here... God will develop some of the major themes of His covenant that was inaugurated in chapter 15. Here God is developing some of the promise that He spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham was about 75 years old when God made him a promise in Genesis 12. When you come to Genesis 17, Abraham is 99 years old. So a long time has passed. Not only that. Look in your Bibles to Genesis 16, verse 16. That's just before chapter 17. Look at ch- chapter 16, verse 16, so you can get the the context to chapter 17. How old was Abraham when Hagar bore Ishmael, according to verse 16? How old was he? 86. And how old is Abraham in verse 1 of chapter 17? 99. For my mathematicians, brothers and sisters, what is the span of time here? 13 years. 13 years. 13 years that we know nothing about Abraham. Look at that. There's one line separating verse 16 to verse 1. 13 years that we know nothing about Abraham. Isn't that amazing? The Bible doesn't tell us anything about him during this time here. 13 years. 13 years that we know that he's loving and he's caring and he's taking care of Ishmael as if he is the son of the promise. That's what Moses is telling us. 13 years. Get a 13 year old boy, and that's Abraham loving this boy, loving this son, believing that that's the son of the promise. And when it comes to chapter 17, what does the Lord do? That's not the son of the promise. Some scholars think that Genesis 17 is a new covenant with Abraham. I disagree. Uh, Hebrew language and the canon of the Scriptures disagree with this idea. So some people say that uh, Genesis 15 is uh, unconditional. It's an unconditional covenant. And then Genesis 17 is a conditional covenant. And then you have two covenants with Abraham. I completely disagree. The Bible is very clear that there is one covenant with Abraham. And what's taking place here is that the Lord is expanding. That's the word. The, the English translation, I do think, is very good. And it says that God is making a covenant with Abraham in chapter 17. It's a different Hebrew word. It means to reaffirm or uphold. And that's what the Lord is doing to Abraham. He's upholding that covenant that was established in chapter 15. And the Lord tells Abraham, after 13 years of loving, treasuring this boy, the Lord comes to him and says, no, that's not the boy. Sarah, Sarai will have the boy. And how do they react to that promise? They laughed at God. They laugh. the laughter. And God tells Abraham to name his son, what? Isaac. What does Isaac mean? Laughter. One scholar says, It's almost a reminder of the chaos and darkness that preceded the creation in Genesis 1. Abraham and Sarah, in their old and decrepit bodies, and in their unbelief, they represent that chaos. into that death and curse will come the laughter of life. And here is God's words to Abraham. When Abraham was, or Abram, was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, walk before me and be blameless. It's interesting, God calling him now to walk before him. In the Bible, sometimes we see God walking before his people, and that implies that God is guiding and protecting. What does it mean for a man to walk before God? Right? What does it mean God telling him, walk before me? And I think Gentry and Wellam, they're right when they say, So Abram is to be God's agent or diplomatic messenger and representative in the world. When the world looks at Abram, they will see what it's like to have a right relationship to God and what is to be what God intended for humanity. So he's walking before God, that means that he's representing God before humanity, just like a priest or a king. is supposed to walk before and show to the other nations what it is to have a covenantal relationship with the Creator and Redeemer. And it makes sense to you, especially because the, the place of the land when you look at the map and you think about the ancient world and the place where God is bringing Abraham and, and, and the, the land that he promised, that's right, Canaan. Canaan was right in the only route that there was between the two superpowers, Mesopotamia to the west, Egypt to the east. These two superpowers... The major route was through Canaan, because the other areas was desert or sea, and that didn't work, so they would have to pass through that region. So that helps us to see what it means to walk before God. All of the communication, commerce and trade back and forth from between Egypt and Mesopotamia will pass through Canaan. And when it does, what are they supposed to see? They are supposed to witness a group of people who demonstrate a right relationship to the one and only true God. A truly human way of treating each other and a proper stewardship of the earth's resources. God calls Abram to be a light to the nations. Remember what I said last Lord's Day about royal priesthood. That's exactly what we see with Abram and the place where God is bringing him. You also see in chapter 17 how God changed his name, no longer Abram. And it's hard to know if Abram means exalted father or father of one nation, and one people. But we know that it changes to Abraham, Abraham, and that means the father of many nations. That's what the Lord is doing. Not only that, but we also see here the sign of the covenant there is a change in signs here and God gives a new sign that's related to this name change with Abraham and the sign of the covenant is important let me go here we see the sign of the covenant in verses 9 through 12 and what was the sign of the covenant with Noah do you remember with the Noah covenant what was the sign of the covenant The bow, the bow hanging in the sky. There is a new sign here, and the sign in the Abrahamic covenant is the circumcision. The circumcision. And notice that Moses, as he's writing Genesis, he doesn't need to explain what circumcision is. Or God doesn't need to explain to Abraham what circumcision is. Why? Why? If I don't need to explain something to you, that means what? You know it. Exactly. So they knew very well about circumcision. That was practiced in the ancient world. And especially when you think about, okay, Moses is writing the Torah to a people that left Egypt. They were there for hundreds of years in Egypt. What did these people understand about circumcision? What is the meaning of circumcision in Egypt? And when you study, you you see that circumcision in Egypt was very specific for those who were priests of the king. So the circumcision was deeply connected to priesthood. It was a ritual of consecration to those who were in the temple and serving the gods as priests. So, Gentry, well, and they say, just as the king priest was the son of the God in Egypt and was consecrated to him through circumcision, Israel, as the firstborn son of Yahweh, has undergone and will undergo circumcision in order to be consecrated to his service. The Egyptian background would reveal to Israel that they indeed belong to Yahweh as his firstborn son, since they had undergone circumcision just as the Pharaoh had. Only the priests were obligated to be circumcised in Egypt. But in Israel, every male was to be circumcised on the eighth day, signifying that Abraham's family consists of priests. Later in the story, Israel is called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then we see that Abraham, he acts just like a priest. Performs the surgery. The place of the sign is important too. Think about that. The place of the sign. In the private part of a male. The seed promise is not a she seed, but it's a a he seed. In Genesis 3.15, it's a seed, a male, a man who will come to undo the fall and the curse of God. That reminds that the seed is male. also reminds that the seed comes from the union of a man and a woman. But this will be developed later to show that this male seed will actually be conceived without a father. But for now, for Israel, it's important to know Because you can imagine, every male, every male was the hope and expectation. Is that the seed promise? Is that the one promised in Genesis? There is also a negative side for the circumcision. The circumcision graphically portrayed the covenant curse of removing and cutting off those who were not loyal to the Lord. So when you walk through Genesis, we will expand more. I just want you to see, because also what day, of when do they have to perform the circumcision? Eighth day. Eighth day in the Bible represents a new creation. It's after the Sabbath. You have six days, you have seventh, the Sabbath, and then the eighth day is a picture of, oh, we need to start again a new creation implying that this seed will bring about the new creation that we so desperately need. And I have heard all sorts of ridiculous arguments for why you should circumcise on the eighth day and and all sorts of things that has nothing to do with the teaching of the Scriptures. Ultimately, the sign is pointing, and that's amazing because Moses, as he's writing this, you're in Genesis here, and you first hear about the circumcision of a physical part of the body and you come to deuteronomy the last book of the torah and moses is already talking about what a circumcision of the heart in all israel that's amazing so ultimately design sign is pointing to the greater reality of the circumcision of the heart when god would perform a surgery through the promised seed A surgery, not in the private organ of a man, but a surgery in the innermost private organ of mankind, and that's the heart. A surgery that will consecrate God's people to be fully devoted to Him as a kingdom of priests through the seed. God also calls Abraham to walk before me and be blameless. Let me see if I have here. It's not here, but... Yeah, God says, be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. What does it mean to be blameless? We know that's deeply connected to the circumcision because God's call, God calls him to be blameless and then commands the circumcision and requiring Moses' obedience, so uh, Moses, you know, Abraham's obedience. So you can see that blameless is it, deeply connected to obeying the Lord, trusting His promises. Blameless throughout the Scriptures is related to trusting God's promise and obeying his commandments. And you see how Abraham here is obedient. can only picture. He gets all the men in his clan, in his family. And let me tell you, they didn't have a hospital. It's not like they set up an appointment and said, All right, we are all going to the doctor today. That's pretty harsh. Pretty hard. Pretty painful, I believe. And he obeys. And he brings all those who want to be part of his community with him. Have you ever heard women saying that the Bible is patriarchal and put the women down? How many women are happy that that was not their calling? And let me tell you that there was... Female circumcision, there has always been this nasty, gruesome, sinful thing. And God does not call them. Just the male who will bear. Reminding us that a male will come to restore humanity. A better Adam, a greater Adam. And Abraham, he obeys showing him to strive to be blameless before the Lord, but the obedience in chapter 17 of the circumcision is actually nothing compared to what's coming in chapter 22. So turn with me to Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22. Because now the Lord is going to call and test Abraham Not to cut off off a little piece of His body, but to cut off His Son, the seed. So when we come to Genesis 22, I like what Bill Arnold says, with Genesis 22 you have now reached the summit of the Abrahamic narratives in terms of both literature and theology. And I would say physically also you reach the summit because we come with Abraham all the way to the top of Mount Moriah with Abraham. And Genesis 22 is basically bringing the whole story of Abraham together. Of course, he's going to die in chapter 25, but chapter 22 is vital in in this story, in the Abrahamic covenant because it brings together the first call of Abraham. So it's very connected to, Abraham, to Genesis chapter 12. There are only two places in the Hebrew Bible that we have the expression, Leklaka, go. And that's right there, Genesis 12, 1, and then Genesis 22:2, 2, when God calls Abraham to go. In Genesis 12, it's unknown place. In Genesis twenty two is an unknown mountain that God will tell him. In Genesis twelve two, God says the place he will show Abraham. In twenty two, a place that I will tell you. In Genesis twelve, the sacrifice is described with three elements country, family, and father's house. The sacrifice described in chapter twenty two also has three elements your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Abraham obeys in chapter 12. Abraham obeyed in chapter 22. In 12, he's called to sacrifice his past. And then in Genesis 22, he's called to sacrifice his future. In Genesis 12, Abraham is described as a priest. The same in chapter 22. And God promises a great nation in both chapters. Bringing the story together of Abraham. It's interesting that in chapter 17... God comes to Abraham and says, I am El Shaddai. El Shaddai. We translate as God Almighty, but actually many Hebrew scholars, they're not certain the meaning of Shaddai. And there are many, many faithful scholars that actually believe that the word Shaddai comes from the Akkadian, Shadu, that means mountain. And we see Yahweh as the God of the mountain. And he is, throughout the scriptures, the mountain of the Lord, the one who is on his mountain, the God of the mountain. And remember that he expelled Adam and Eve from his holy mountain. He brought Noah to his mountain. And now in Genesis 22, he's calling Abraham to come to the top of the mountain of the Lord. Look in your Bibles, Genesis 21. Genesis chapter 21. What is the title in your Bibles of Genesis chapter 21? The birth of Isaac. Isaac's born. He's probably in his late teens by now. Genesis chapter 22. What do we have? The call to sacrifice Isaac. That's all we have, Genesis 22, and now the inconceivable inconceivable takes place. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was called to sacrifice his past, and now in Genesis 22, he's called to sacrifice what? His future. And that's the gospel call. The gospel call is a call for us to put to death everything that is hindering us in the past and in the future from enjoying God's presence fully. So my question is, what's your hope for the future? What do you hold as your hope for the future? What do you have in your hands that you say, Oh, my future will be good because I have this. Savings? Retirement plan. Properties, rental houses, nice job. And the Lord can come in any second and just put to death there and say, No, I love you so much that you're not gonna be trusting these things for your future. And then look at chapter twenty-two, look at verse seventeen. Here we see something new, a new element in the Abrahamic covenant. He says, And your seed, that's singular, and your seed, his male seed, singular, shall possess what? The gate of his enemy. Oh. If we are tracing this back to Genesis chapter 3.15, where the seed will come, who is the primary enemy? The serpent. How is to destroy the gate of the enemy? But we are told in Genesis 3.15, this seed will truly crush the serpent's skull, the head of the serpent. So we see here a development of Genesis 3.15. Not only that, but you also see Abraham, if he's going to have the seed and will be a royal seed, we see Abraham as a king, but primarily we see Abraham as a priest. Abraham is called to behave just like a priest. He builds the altar, he places the wood, he offers the sacrifice, he comes to worship the Lord on his mountain. And remember, as he's about you, bring the knife down on isaac what happens the angel of the lord abraham abraham done don't need to do that and now, what does abraham see what does abraham see a ram he sees a ram And what happened to that ram? It takes the place of the firstborn son of Abraham and Sarah. All these things are being developed throughout the scriptures and will be developed more. What is fascinating is where Abraham is. He's on Mount Moriah. So you have Mount Moriah in Genesis, and then if you get the Tanakh, the, the, the Hebrew canon, and remember that the Hebrew canon has a different structure from the English canon. And in the Hebrew canon, the last book of the Bible is what? Chronicles. So you have in Genesis, and then you have in 2 Chronicles 3.1, the, the author of Chronicles is telling us that Solomon built the temple Where? You can say, on Mount Moriah, that's where Solomon built the temple. That's fascinating. And in between here, you have the account of David buying a threshing floor in a high place in the same location. Mount Moriah, the place of the Jebusites, that's Salem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's the same location. So here, from Abraham to Solomon, you have the highway of the sacrificial system in the nation of Israel. God provides an animal. The next book of the Bible after Genesis is what? Exodus. What happens in Exodus chapter 12? We have the Passover. God provides what? An animal to take the place of whom? The firstborn son of Israel. This theme is developed with the Day of Atonement, when a goat is sacrificed on behalf of the whole nation. One scholar says it is as the Day of Atonement is bringing Abraham's experience to the whole nation. Israel In the day of atonement is also spared the knife. The knife does not come on Israel. Instead it comes upon the goat. Just like in Genesis 22. And of course the cultic ritual culminates with Jesus. The true Passover lamb who was sacrificed. Given by the Father in Jerusalem on the hill of Golgotha. So... Another important aspect as we are thinking about the development of the Abrahamic Covenant, Genesis 22, is the rest of the scripture. Abraham is called, he's tested, and he's going to offer Abraham as a whole burnt offering. The whole burnt offering was a, a picture of full devotion to the Lord. That's what the whole burnt offering symbolized, completely devotion to the Lord. And in this way, the Lord is teaching us that the seed of Abraham, when he comes, the true seed, there will be no ram, there will be no goat, there will be no lamb, he will be that sacrifice. The billows of smoke and fire will consume the true son of Abraham. And that's exactly what happens with Jesus. There is no escape with him. Look at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 22. It says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemy. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why? 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 Because you believed my promise? He obeyed. James, in James chapter 2, he takes this to show how Abraham was justified by works. So do you remember in Genesis 15, we saw that Abraham was justified by faith? Do you remember that? We saw last Lord's Day and Abraham believed God and that was counted to him as righteousness. Wait a second. But now, the Lord is saying that He will fulfill His covenant promise because of His obedience. What is that? Saving faith is never dead. Saving faith is always a working faith. That's why I have an abomination towards people who say, Oh yeah, he professed to be a Christian for years. Nobody can see any fruit of salvation, but he says he's a Christian. Sorry, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is a working faith. It's an obedient faith that's always transforming us to be more and more like Christ. We need to be very careful because demons believe, James tells us. But they don't obey the Lord. Saving faith is always an obedient faith that shows itself through works. Amen? So, there's so much and I need to move on. Uh, So, as a summary, we see how The major promises of the covenant towards abraham is connected to genesis 1 and 3 so all the major promises of god to abraham is going back to genesis 1 and 3 and i don't have time to show you that but i will send you my notes also as we think as we think about the coherence of the scriptures, and as we are trying to see the beauty of God's tapestry in putting together His revelation, His working throughout history, we need to stop and think, okay, how does the story of Abraham, how does this covenant is related or relate to the previous covenants, the previous story? Because the story of God has coherence. It's a beautiful story. And I like what Bernard Ock says. He writes, "Abraham occupies a pivotal position in the Bible in the biblical drama of creation and redemption. He provides not only an answer to the broken relations of the past, but also a paradigmatic model for the future. The Abraham narrative presents a microcosmic description of the history and destiny of Israel and sets forth. The basic characteristics of its existence before God. Like Abraham, the people of Israel will be taken from the family of the nations and placed on a road whose direction and destination lie entirely in God's hands. A road which leads to a new land and a new existence. We start seeing how Abraham is putting together the story of the Bible through his calling. As we look backwards... Gordon Wenans, he says, he's showing how Abraham is related to Adam and Noah. He says, the promises to Abraham renew the vision for humanity set out in Genesis 1 and 2. He, Abraham, like Noah before him, is a second Adam, a second Adam figure. Adam was given the Garden of Eden. Abraham is promised the land of Canaan. God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. Abraham is promised descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven. God walked with Adam in Eden. Abraham was told to walk before God. In this way, the advent of Abraham is seen as the answer to the problem set out in Genesis 1-11. Through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not only that, Go to Genesis chapter 12. How does the story of Abraham start in Genesis 12.1? What are the first words? And the Lord said... How does the creation account go? And God said, and God said, and the Lord said. So you can see how Moses is placing Abraham as an agent of a new creation that's taking place and that will take place through his seed. And Paul takes this subject in Romans chapter 4. He explores Abraham and the new creation, God giving life to the dead womb, as an example of this pattern that's being shown here, the Abrahamic covenant is attached to the Noahic covenant. In the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, God preserves creation for the coming of the seed. In the Abrahamic covenant, God now shows through which line the seed will come. This is the line of Abraham. There are patterns similarities between Abraham and Noah. And all of them, Adam, Noah, Abraham, so far, they all show themselves to be royal priests, men who image God and who serve as priests before His presence. And as we look forward, so we are looking back, as we look forward, placing the Abrahamic covenant in the overall structure of the Drama of the Bible and as now we start looking forward how God is going to develop that we see many similarities between Abraham and the nation of Israel we saw some already so for example God called Abraham on a three day journey to worship the Lord on the mountain God called Israel on a three day journey to worship him on the mountain dedication of the firstborn dedication of the firstborn Exodus, Uh, Abraham, an Exodus journey from Babylon to the promised land. Israel, Exodus journey from Egypt to the promised land. In Abraham, we see the Lord saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur. In Exodus 20, we see the Lord saying similar thing to Israel. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Both are called to sacrifice on the mountain of the Lord. Both are tested by God. Both have circumcision to show, to show consecration, and both are called to be royal priests. Also, moving quickly, the Abrahamic covenant is inseparable from the Davidic covenant that will take place. Both the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant you have the promise of a great name, promise of a king and kings, sacrifice on, on the Mount Moriah, promise of land, the borders of the land in Genesis is expanded now with the reign of Solomon nations will be blessed in both covenants the promise of a seed in both covenants and royal priesthood in both covenants and of course as we come to the New Testament we know that the whole New Testament is the development and showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these covenants and especially the Abrahamic covenant Amen Tired? You see we walk through Genesis 17. Look at that. We walk through Genesis 17 through 22. Right? So let me finish. Just And I think that's the most important part. The heart of the Abrahamic covenant. Sometimes we can get lost with all, all these things. And that's something I, wanna, I have been striving to show you. How the main theme of the Bible is God preparing a way through covenants to have a kingdom of priests. A royal priesthood. Men who will be His image bearers, expanding His kingdom, and as priests dwelling and enjoying His presence. And here's the heart of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 17, 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring. And I will give it to you and your offspring After you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And what does he say? What? I will be their God. That's the heart of the covenant promise. I will be your God. I will be their God. They will be my people. That's the heart of the Abrahamic covenant. God is pledging to be all that He can be to His people. To be God to you means that God is saying to Abraham, I will be for you. I will exercise my deity for you, Abraham. I will be committed to you, Abraham. That's what it means. That's the heart of the covenant. God being for his people. Ultimately, the heart of the covenant with Abraham, all those promises is God dwelling with him. I am God to you, and I will be their God. Here is an exercise. Define God. Get all the revelation that we have of God and try to define God. And as Brian, as Brian was praying earlier today, he was mentioning all the glorious attributes of God, his mercy, his sovereignty, his kindness, his grace. His power. Start adding all those things together. Sovereign, eternal, almighty, merciful, faithful, love, holy, just. And then you put on your side, I will be your God. You have that on your side. And if you have that on your side, do you need anything else? So, how heartbreaking it is to see so many Christians always always buy more junk always in debt because they need more stuff more stuff more junk more things never satisfied with god and his presence to have god's smiling presence is to have all in genesis 22 when god is testing abraham he's testing abraham And he's showing Abraham there's something greater, more precious than a son. And it is to enjoy his covenantal presence with him. To enjoy God. And that's what God is testing Abraham. Let me see if you love me more than you love this stuff. The major elements of the Abrahamic covenant all connect to God's gracious and covenantal presence. The land. What what is the land but a place where God dwells with His people? What is the seed but the seed is Emmanuel, God with us? And what is blessing to the nations but enjoying His presence? Since the opposite of blessing is curse, and curse takes us back to Genesis 3, being expelled from God's presence. The greatest blessing is to enjoy God's presence. And that's why God commends Aaron as he's standing and he's blessing, giving the benediction upon the people. He says, the, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, and the Lord what? Oh, his face shine upon you. Enjoy, enjoy his smiling face. That's the heart of the covenant. To be God to you. I will be God to you. What an indescribable and indestructible gift. No wonder Paul says, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? us? But you can change that. Because if God is not for you, it doesn't matter what you have. You can have the best relationships. You You can have all the money. You can have family loving you. You can have friends loving you. You can have comfort. And yet you have hell. But if you have God through Jesus, the seed, that's what Paul says, we have been blessed through the seed, Jesus Christ. Then we have God with us, God for us, and we can enjoy His presence. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You for Your love and Your wisdom. How marvelous are Your ways to call an old man, an old woman, to be the instruments, the vessels of this insane plan of salvation. It is indeed indeed foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, that's a majestic, a beautiful story. The story of your gospel. Give us eyes to see the beauty of Your Word. Help us to devour Your Word and be fed with Your Word. Help us to put to death the desire to find fulfillment and satisfaction in entertainment and other stuff. Help us to be satisfied with Your presence, Lord. That's why Jesus came. The heart of the new covenant. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And we have all that we need in you and more. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.